Welcome to the Lend Academy podcast, episode number 198. This is your host, Peter Renton, founder of Lend Academy and co-founder of the Lend It Fintech Conference. Today's show is sponsored by Lendit Fintech Europe 2019, Europe's leading event for innovation in financial services. It's coming up on the 26th and 27th of September in London at the Business Design Centre. We've recently opened registration as well as speaker applications. You can find out more by going to lendit.com slash Europe. Today on the show, I'm delighted to welcome Charlie Dellingpole. He is the CEO and founder of Comply Advantage. Now, Comply Advantage are a fascinating company. They are in the anti-money laundering space, or really the compliance space, and they have developed new technology which allows them to connect with pretty much any financial institution and, and help them help them really manage their their compliance risk uh, when it comes to anti-money laundering. So we talk about how they do that, how he's able to build a new really a new technology from scratch and how he's able to manage you know really integrating with with very archaic technology at banks as well as with some of the the, the newer fintech companies. And we also talk about what's wrong with compliance today and how we can really get to a point where we're 10 times, even 50 times better at it than what we are today. It was a fascinating interview. I hope you enjoyed the show. Welcome to the podcast, Charlie. Great to be on the line, Peter. Okay, so I like to get this thing started by giving the listeners a little bit of background about yourself. You've had an interesting career, and this is not your, your first foray in fintech, so why don't you give us a little bit of background about yourself? Yeah, so um, I started my first company when I was 16. My second company was also in the kind of peer-to-peer lending space. So I started Market Invoice back in 2009. Back then, it wasn't really fintech. It was just kind of invoice financing. But then very soon, it was this maelstrom of sexiness, which became fintech. Um, <laughs> market in- <laughs> and so Market Invoice was a kind of peer-to-peer invoice finance platform, lending money to small companies, lent a few billion now, raised $35 million from Santander and Barclays back in February. I started this company, Comply Advantage, about five years ago after leaving Market Invoice, and we're roughly 200 people and 450 clients and four offices around the world now. Okay. So, yeah, we, we had a Neil on the show last year, and uh, so I think the listeners are pretty well aware of what Market Invoice is all about. But so I guess the question is, why... You know, why did you leave Market Invoice, which obviously has grown a lot since you left? But so, what what was the what was the impetus to leave and dis, and you know deciding to start Comply Advantage? I think things going very well at Market Invoice. Um, lots of opportunity elsewhere. Anna was doing a great job, so I just thought um, it best at that time to kind of part ways and move on to something new and exciting. Okay, okay. So then, what was sort of the what was the aha moment or the, or the idea that led to the founding of Comply Advantage? What was, you know, the germination of the, of the company? So the kind of Damascene moment, I think, was when I walked into a Somali remittance store in Mayfair in 2014. Mm-hmm. So the, this company is based opposite the Saudi embassies. You have these big armed guards juxtaposed with these large trucks of cash moving money from <laughs> Somali and... Yeah, so from, from, from Somali and Afghan communities around London mm-hmm. and just seeing the people there having to deal with 
processing huge amounts of payments, which could be going to Al-Shabaab, the Taliban, ISIS, or could be going to your uncle. I mean, and seeing how terrible the software was and the data was, and seeing how, for me, it was extremely obvious how terrible, also how consequential what they were doing was. And therefore, at that point, I had no real choice other than, like, I just going to have to go and build this business because I think, given my experience in the past, so given what I knew at Market Invoice with regards to how difficult it was to onboard investors, how difficult it was to understand the risk of which companies to lend to, given what I knew about the market from Jake Morgan, given I knew about the potential in terms of technology and data from my first company and from working at Market Invoice, I, I saw an amazing opportunity to restructure and reinvent something which was obviously being done in a really archaic and terrible way. Right. So, yeah. so and with that, I mean, it's not only that, it's, it's, I mean, one of the things about financial crime, I continue seeing this stat sort of bandied around is that, you know, like we catch 1% or thereabouts of all of money laundering globally. And, you know, we, we have these massive compliance, you know, organizations inside banks that don't seem to do a very good job. So what well, I guess maybe before we get into compliance advantage, what maybe why is it so hard? Why is it so hard to catch um, money laundering, money launderers? So to an extent, it's an arms race and it, transcends every geography, every industry, every client type, and it's the full spectrum of human behavior. So whilst it could be Trump, who today cut down on Iranian sanctions with oil, the next day it could be human trafficking, it could be wildlife trafficking, it could be trying to defraud a peer-to-peer lending exchange, it could be money laundering. Like, And because money is so fungible and can be disguised and transmuted in so different things and different goods and services, the kind of nature of capital means it can morph and flow and therefore it's impossible to define and therefore it's everywhere. As in, you can disguise it in inflated invoices, you can do it with loans and, and, and therefore what you have is this impossible arms race between criminals, terrorists, money launderers and institutions who are the vectors and vehicles that they try and exploit. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, so then, so maybe that we can segue into into uh, compliant advantage, and maybe you can tell us uh, exactly what your company does. So, principally, what Climate does is help companies manage the risk around sanctions and money laundering. So, on a really basic level, it's: Am I allowed to lend money to this company? No, because they're an Iranian general who's funding the Iranian terrorist group, or no, because they're the Venezuelan central government ambassador, and therefore they're prohibited from any kind of funds flowing to them. So at the most basic level, it's, am I allowed to do business with this person? So then you, and what you do then is you have, I mean, I imagine you just have a massive database, right? That you, that's constantly being updated, I, um, I imagine. But uh, I mean, so it, it's, are you really just focused on the binary decision on is this person a good and reputable person? And so, so I guess that's one part of the question. And two is then, is this, is this then, I mean, what is the secret source? I imagine a lot of people have databases of, yeah. of, bad, of bad actors. So what, what is your secret source? So... The reason why everyone has failed in the past is because it's a very, very challenging problem. So what you have now is hundreds of millions of dollars spent on manual labor 
And despite all this expense, despite all this investment, despite all this technology being deployed, people still get fined billions of dollars. The terrorists and money launderers still win, right? So for whatever reason in the past, no one has managed to solve this problem. And so for me, it was trying to build a company that was capable of succeeding where everyone else has failed, right? Mm -hmm. And so that was kind of principally looking at the industry, understanding who was doing what, the way they were doing it, the different incentives to each party, the different structural legacy systems they were stuck with, and trying to invent a solution. And that's what we built over the past five years. So in summary, what we've done is what was seemingly impossible at the start, which is build the entire system end-to-end, which is the case management, the search algorithm, the API, the transaction monitoring, the paper analytics, the entity resolution, and database. And all these things in a combined holistic system, we think are now able to make a real dent in the challenge, which would never have been possible beforehand. So but not only that, you've got, to, you've got to not just build it, you've got to interface with existing systems, which I imagine are all very different. I mean, obviously, you've got some of the, the, core, the core banking processes, there'll, there'll be some similarities, but how are you able to interface with you know, everyone from, uh, uh, you know, you've got a legacy bank running COBOL to a fintech company that's five years old or less and running you know, some of the latest Python you know, t- technology? What, how, do you, how do you manage both? So I think what people don't often understand is that an API is the most important interface of all. Like, whilst it's very easy to, to be able to understand the human interface in terms of the kind of web interface, mm-hmm. in terms of catering to developers and the kind of industrial process of managing millions of searches and the, the ability to get the kind of very high performance results from the API, being able to design that and have all the functionality around that I think that's a huge differentiator in terms of the way it's constructed and the way it's built, the way it's maintained, the way it's interfaced. And so we've invested huge amounts of resources into building what we think is the best API in the world. And so all of the clients we have integrate with the API. Right. So it doesn't matter whether they're running COBOL or whether they're running Python, they will integrate. They'll be able to still get the same out or the same, the same results from, your, from interfacing with you regardless. Exactly, yeah, exactly. Okay, okay. So then why don't we, I'm curious then, you know, with, before you guys came along, what sort of compliance, I mean, banks, as I said, they've, they've invested, you know, billions of dollars into this. What, were they, what have they been doing and uh, why is it so inadequate? So a key dimension of what we're doing is around all the data. So what you have now is, or in the time before we arrived, was you had three or four main data providers. And these data providers, what they do is they really pride themselves on having 500 analysts, right? And all these analysts kind of came from editorial backgrounds. And they try and track, of the 7 billion people, they try and track and then maintain a database of, say, 5 million people they thought were high risk, right? So sanctions political exposure, adverse media. And so what that means is if you have 500 analysts and they spend a few minutes every four years, they can spend, therefore, 10 minutes on each person every four years, which means the kind of breadth and depth of data is completely not very helpful. Um, Whereas for me, starting off from scratch, I felt the only way to solve that was to do it via an algorithm. And of course, when you start building these algorithms, 
at the start, they, they aren't particularly effective. So you have to invest huge amounts of resources and time to get them up to the stage where they're better and more effective than the human researchers. But if you can do that, then that's a huge inflection point. And then there are also other things that you can do once that foundation infrastructure is built. So, and then in terms of what you have that data, then you can have have the fusion between the data and the API and the search algorithm and the case management. And so architecturally, what you have is a, a kind of step change in terms of what's possible. So by rebuilding everything from scratch in-house into this kind of holistic system, we think we're able to get much better results. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I want to actually just, just if you could just talk, talk us through an example of how it works in practice. So someone comes along to a bank, for example, they've, they've got... You know, they've got a hundred thousand dollars that they want to, they want to deposit or they want to invest in, in, in whatever. The bank says, okay, we need to do our KYC and AML, you know, type, uh, tests. And then, then so that, that this person's entered in a whole bunch of data. Then they send it to you through this, through the API. What, what is it that you do exactly? And what do you send back to them? So what we send back is, profiles of people that we think match the entity that they're trying to onboard and details of that person. So it could be Peter Renton, he's involved in human trafficking, he launched an attack on Al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb, all, all these things about this person. And they'll say, okay, actually, different date of birth, different Peter Renton, and therefore we're going to remediate that profile as, as not being the correct match. Mm-hmm. The next match could be the correct Peter Renton, in which case probably you don't want to onboard him because he's a super high risk. Right. Okay. So then, so what you, is, is the output from your API really just a binary yes, no decision or is it, or do, do you send back like a much more rich kind of data set and then the, the people at the other side make the, less, the yes, no decision? What we send back is a kind of entity profile. So it could be a person or a company and they have to decide, is that person or company the same as the one that they're trying to onboard and are confronted with currently? So we don't, make the choices it's up to the lending company themselves to decide whether or not they want this person or company as a client right right okay the 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 challenge becomes if you're onboarding a million clients every year and if you already have a million clients or already clients because at any given point if like a a few of those could become terrorists they could become money launderers they could become subject to things like cuckoo smurfing they could be taken over by criminal gangs so you need to know when you're maintaining your client base, which of them then become high risk right. because that can land you in jail. And at the same time, when you're trying to grow the business and make money, you have this hidden risk, which you're not aware of. So um, it isn't just the entity-based risk profile. It's also the kind of transactional behavioral analysis. So right. let's say you have two different companies who are transacting with each other as counterparties by your system, then you need well to understand that risk as well. So or if they start sending money to Iran, or they start transacting in Iraqi dinars. So there's both the entity risk, and then there's the ongoing monitoring risk, and then there's the behavioral risk as well. So we're trying to help companies understand all those different attack vectors. Right. And so I imagine you've, I mean, you've got to have, like, you've got to be like Google in some ways. You've got to go out and just search, search the internet for, for all these kinds of, 
Uh, I mean, I imagine you've got some pretty extensive different data sources, but yeah, because someone someone may not be a money launderer today. They might be a completely law-abiding citizen. They wouldn't raise any red flags, and something happens, and they get recruited by a terrorist organization or what have you, and suddenly they become one. So, how are you? How are you building? Like, are you just going out? I imagine it's all automated, but you're just going out. Your servers are going out, scouring the globe for for new cases of of people who become bad actors. So what you have absolutely is this trend whereby there's this explosion of information and it could be in Swahili, it could be in Afghan, it could be in Russian. Mm-hmm. And then you have, you know, so it could be Vladimir Putin in French, it could be Vladimir Putin in Cyrillic. So you have all these different people, all these different sources, billions upon billions of new web pages, social media feeds, all, all these different risks that suddenly appear. And you have clients applying to you from all over the world, from shell companies, and so if you only have a team of, say, 50 people, how do you manage this enormous risk, right? So what we're trying to do is make this as efficient as possible. I think it's going to be difficult to completely eliminate the risk, but the more data sources and the more ability to make simple what is inherently complex, then the easier and lower risk it'll be for different lending companies and the more likely it is that they can stay in business. Mm-hmm. Sure. So then, I mean, there's been a lot of talk this year. I've, I've read of many articles about like there was the trouble, I think it was the, in Estonia with the money laundering. What, but I'm curious to get what, what region, what parts of the world have, have the worst or have the most you know, financial crime? So we have clients now in 45 countries. And what's fascinating for me, like traveling around is how each different jurisdiction is completely different in terms of the risk exposed. So in our Singapore office, for instance, a big risk is the Chinese abscondi Skynet risk. So there's people who have been tracked by the Chinese government and then go to Indonesia or Malaysia. So there's a risk there. Or in, in the Baltics, we have a team focused on Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia. And so the risk there is obviously all, all the Russian money coming in. So And then in South America, it's going to be different forms of drug gangs. And and so those aren't necessarily siloed. So given the intensification of globalization, it could be that a Mexican drug gang is working in league with a Russian money launderer who's then linked to a Chinese drug cartel, right? So I think as crime becomes more transnational and more complex, the risks and and, and consequences of, of criminal finances become all the more extreme. So it's, it's everywhere and it's, it, it, it's hyperlocal, but also global at the same time. Right, right. And so then, so what, what geographies do you operate in? I know, I know I'm talking to you today, you're, you're in New York, but you're obviously not American. Uh, yeah, I know you're, 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 uh, you're, you're British, but what geographies do you actually operate in today? So we have three global hubs, so New York, London, and Singapore. And the teams are kind of based out of there. Okay. Okay. So then, but you will have, so you've got clients in 45 countries. So I guess whatever country is, is closest, that's where you, you're managing everything out of those yeah. three offices. Right? In terms of offering the best support and, but also in terms of understanding the local risks in terms of, and, and also the local name matching requirements, the kind of languages, the, the data sources, each different regulation and regulator has different nuances, which we have to understand. And, um, to operate in one country, you have to operate in the whole world because each different, each local country will often need to screen for global requirements. So right. it's not good enough having local coverage. You have to be completely global from day one. Wow, that's uh, 
that, that, that's a that's a that's a decent sized barrier to entry, I imagine, for for a lot of a lot of people, a lot of companies. That's uh, I, I think the barriers to entry for business. Uh, I think huge and only getting larger in terms of reputation, in terms of adoption, in terms of data coverage, in terms of efficiency. So I think clients are becoming more and more demanding as the risks and consequences become tougher and tougher. And, and, and that was partly why we raised the $30 million from Index in December is because right now we're roughly 200 people, but I think we want to take our tech team and development team, like try and double that this year if we can, because I think just the, the sheer range of things we need to do and the sheer numbers of features and data sources and efficiency and effectiveness to the algorithms that clients demand is just only going to, ever get, going to increase as long as on. Right, right. So we, we haven't talked about it yet, but I, I imagine this is a big part of your, your technology, and that is you know, artificial intelligence, machine learning, you're dealing with massive data sets. So how are you using you know, AI, ML in, um, you know, in your business and you know, the hot to, you know, to help companies you know, with all of this, uh, you know, all this monitoring? So for me, the whole AI thing is kind of very overhyped. But I think if you really understand what it actually does in production and how you, and how you can actually use it, it, it's actually fairly simple, right? So I, mean, I think in 10 years, people won't really talk about machine learning as a kind of amazing thing. It'll just be something that everyone does mm-hmm. in the same way that SQL was amazing 20 years ago. But now it's, now it's something that it just fuses everything. So I think... Um, but in terms of how we actually use it, I guess there are various different dimensions of uh, machine learning in terms of supervised, unsupervised, natural language processing, entity resolution, anomaly detection, like K-means. So all these things are kind of tactical things which can help improve certain subsections of the platform. But to the extent, what we basically built is this very broad system. And you have to look at each different component of the system and understand in that specific juncture, can that be improved by a machine learning algorithm? So, and I think what we've done is just use it at certain components. And I think probably had we not used that technology throughout the entire system, it probably wouldn't work at all, right? So I think, right. um, so yeah, I mean, the, the most basic one is a classifier, right? So what, what we have is a database of like 5 million people and a key challenge is, is this person that we just isolated the same as an existing person? So you have to look through when you have a new name is this person the same as another one of these 5 million entities, right? So that's a binary classifier. And the more training data we feed that, the more accurate that is, right? So but I can go through like, you know, entity resolution. So if we have 5 million clients from, from a client, then which of those existing clients is the same as the current one? So all those things can be improved with new technology. And as Google, Facebook, Amazon, release more and more algorithms, we think that our technology will only improve with time. Right, right. Okay. Okay, so then, so who, who is your target customer? Because is, is your target customer like every financial institution on the planet or do you, is, it, is it large banks? I mean, you've got this, this imagine, is, is a big problem for just about everybody. But who are, who are you specifically targeting? So right now we have like something like 400 clients, 400 clients directly, but then, but then probably the same again via reseller partners. So lots of our, lots of our clients um, would work through, say, like, for instance, Jumio announced that they're working with us. So yeah. you can access our data via Jumio, right? So, but yeah, I think um, we work with lots of lending companies, payment companies, 
banking companies, so but then also high-risk corporates too, right? So I, I think ultimately this will be relevant to all companies. So one of our earliest clients was FedEx in Zimbabwe who had to understand if they were dealing with the Mugabe regime, right? So I think companies all over the world are becoming more and more concerned with the integrity and fidelity of their counterparties. And as the risks increase, we think all companies will care very deeply about this. Right. So you are going beyond financial services. Obviously, you have FedEx. They're not really a financial services firm, but uh, that's really interesting. That, 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 that is uh, a much bigger opportunity then. Exactly. And, and, and I think to an extent, all these categories like credit, fraud, identity, in a way that those, those distinctions are going to be relatively artificial in terms of fraud, perhaps 20% of credit losses are because of fraud or or perhaps lots of losses from, from, from fraud because of identity issues. So I think over time, all these markets will probably merge into one rather than being distinct categories. Right, right. Fair enough. So then can you give us the names of any of any of the clients you're working with? I mean, is, is, are any of them publicly you know, declaring that they're partnering with you? I think on our website, we've got, I think we've got Santander, and Visa slash Earthport and Holvi and I think we've got Lend Invest on there. So yeah, a kind of very broad range of banking, payments, fintech companies. Right, right. Okay. Okay. So then you've given us a sense of, of, of the number of clients. I'd be curious about what is, because some of these clients might have, you know, Santander obviously massive, you know, millions and millions of clients. I mean, what is sort of the the volume of inquiries that you, you, you get on a, on a daily basis. Can you give us some sense of the, the scale that you're dealing with right now? I think it's roughly 100 a second in terms of like API load. 100 a second. Okay, so what's that? That's, that's 360,000 an hour then. Yeah, but I think, and then also, also it's the numbers, again, who are monitoring daily, right? So... A lot of clients are very concerned about the ongoing risk and have daily alerts set up as well. So right. Um, right. that's a kind of a decent million number of searches every night. Right. Okay. Okay. When I was, I was doing some background on, on you guys and I, 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 I see the, the name, is it Mimiro? Is that how you say it? M-I-M-I-R-O? Yeah. Is that, yeah. is that a new brand or what, what's, so what's going on with Comply Advantage and Mimiro? We're in the process of sorting out all the trademarks. There was a slight hiccup, I think, with the trademark with a small Norwegian farming company who um, okay. might have registered the same trademark at precisely the same time a week before us. But yeah, we'll, we'll try and sort that out. So, so you, yeah, that seems the, to intent, be... the intention is to do a rebrand down the track then? Yeah, I think so, yeah. Right, right. Okay, so uh, you, you, mentioned, you mentioned Index Ventures and your, your Series B last year. I think it was, was, I think it was just late last year. So I'm curious about the, the venture community. I mean, and, and you know, obviously you've got some A-list backers. What do they see? What sort of, how, tell us about that process and you know, how you were able to land some of these you know, top name VCs. So we raised very early on from Bolton. I think then we were kind of 15 people and we had Tim Bunting and Sarang came on board at a very early stage and they invested $7 million, I think like three years ago. Mm-hmm. And that was really instrumental in terms of bringing on the right people who really understood both the technology and the market opportunity. 
And they really encourage us just to invest extremely heavily in the platform and technology. And so we really didn't kind of take the product to market for a long, long time until we felt it was of sufficient quality and caliber. And I guess since then, we've been kind of doubling headcount and tripling revenue since we kind of launched into the market. And um, we were fortunate enough to bring Index and Jan Hammer on board in January. Jan, of course, has amazing pedigree having backed companies like Adyen and Robinhood. Mm -hmm. So to the extent that everything he's touched is going to turn to gold and (laughs) he has an amazing understanding of teams and fintech. And I think he really understands the potential for what the company can do and what we can build. And I think for me, it's great to have that level of guidance and prescience around how to build a company, how to evolve the product, how to build a team. And I think I'm very excited to be able to work with that quality of investor and director. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Sure. So we're almost out of time. Just a, just a couple more questions. I'm curious if, I mean, obviously you said it's 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 an arms race between the the bad guys and the and the people like yourself. Do you think are we ever going to get to where we're ca- we're capturing you know ten percent, twenty percent, you know, God forbid, fifty percent of of all of these people are we are we or do you think it's it's such an arms race that it's going to be it's going to be hard to really get you know 50 times better than what we're doing today i think and i hope that what we're building i mean what, what we build today is a very small portion of what we want to build in the future and i think we can do i i i think with the right technology we can solve this problem i think the way it's done now is crazy right and i think I think hopefully with our roadmap and with our investment, we should be able to make a huge dent, right? And I think hopefully we should be able to stop a much greater portion of it because I don't think it can get much worse than it is today. So so you think that you know, the long, long term, I'm, I'm sort of, as you were talking, it reminded me of like spam with email like 20 plus years ago where it was just such a problem. And, and now, I mean, spam is pretty much, I mean, there's still some that gets through, but it's a very much a solved problem. Do you really think that we're going to have, that, that AML will be, it'll be a solved problem in the next several decades? So I think... I think we should be able to eliminate it from quite a few different areas. I think the, part of the reason fintech exists and why alternative lenders exist is because the big banks have done not a great job at their core business and a lot of their core systems just aren't functional. So I think hopefully with the right investment, the right technology, I, I think versus like currently it's a drop of the ocean in terms of what's actually stopped. I, I think we'll be able to make huge strides going forward in completely eliminating money laundering terrorist financing from huge swathes of the economy. Okay, very interesting. So then, so last question then, what, what's next for uh, Compliant Advantage? What, what's, what's on your roadmap, say, for the next 12 to 18 months? So I think it's just been since day one, just relentless, aggressive investment and improvement in the core systems. And I think the incumbents haven't managed to find a solution to the problem and they haven't invested and they haven't, they haven't solved the problem. Given what we're doing and given the rate of improvement, we think every day we can make huge strides and the, the, the compounding effect of those will be huge, right? So I think hopefully we can continue our current level of investment and improvement and we think we're going to make a huge dent in a massive problem and improve both the society and the economy for everyone else. Right, well, on that note, we'll have to leave it there. I wish you the best of luck. It's certainly a needed service. I'll definitely need it. (laughs) Okay, great. Well, thanks, Charlie. I appreciate you coming on the show. Great to talk, Peter. Thank you. See you. 
Well, that was fascinating. And, you know, you can, you can hear it in Charlie's voice, how, how enthusiastic he is about, uh, about solving this problem. And, and as he just pointed out there towards the end, I mean, the reality is the existing financial institutions have done a poor job. They've done a very poor job at really mitigating money laundering. And they, you know, despite all of the billions of dollars and tens of thousands of people that are involved in this, the results just aren't that great. And I think we need a new approach, something like what, uh, what Charlie's company is doing is is so desperately needed so that we can hopefully down the road where you know maybe several decades down the road where money laundering becomes a much smaller business than it is today anyway on that note i will sign off i very much appreciate you listening and i'll catch you next time bye Today's show was sponsored by Lendit Fintech Europe 2019, Europe's leading event for innovation in financial services. It's happening September 26th and 27th at the Business Design Centre in London. Registration is now open as well as speaker applications. Find out more by going to lendit.com slash Europe.